He is risen. risen. And today we are celebrating his resurrection with songs, prayers, scripture readings, and now by considering a portion of God's word together. So let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, we're looking at verses 24 through 34 today. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 926. 926. As soon as we found our place, I'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we will explore the passage together. Let's pray now. Lord, once more we come to you in gratitude for this day. Lord, every Sunday that we gather together, we are celebrating the resurrection of your Son, but how important it is to have one day a year when all of our focus, all of our energy is is concentrated on this great event. Lord, thank you so much for sending your Son into this world. We thank you for his life, his death, and especially today, his resurrection And Lord, use this day to stir our affection for your Son. Help us to see again how important his life was and how central the resurrection is, Lord, and how it ought to compel us to seek you, to find you, and to establish a right relationship with you. Lord, be with this time today. Might your Spirit come Might he minister to our spirits, Lord? Open minds, open hearts. Give us a receptivity to your word and use your word to change us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. A.W. Tozer said that more than 50 years ago. He also said this, that were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the, the spiritual future of that man. And after more than 10 years of pastoral ministry, I'm convinced that Tozer was right. That what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. And then a close second would be what you think about yourself. And these are important because belief drives behavior. And behavior drives destiny. So it's really important that we come to have an accurate picture of God and ourselves. This leads us into today's text, which again is Acts chapter 17, Verses 24 through 34, this passage of Scripture is actually a speech delivered by the Apostle Paul to a group of philosophers in the city of Athens about 2,000 years ago. It's one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. And this speech begins by telling us what we need to know about God. But it doesn't stop there. It then moves to tell us what we need to know about ourselves and then how we can have a relationship with God. And then the speech concludes with a powerful motivation to seek after God. So I want to look through all of the movements of this passage, this ancient speech with you, 
and see what we can learn from it today. So we'll begin with what we need to know about God. We find that in verses 24 and 25 of our text. It says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So several things that we learn about God in these opening verses. Most important thing is that he is really there. God is really there, and there is no one else like him. That's why our passage begins with the words, The God. Elsewhere in Scripture, God calls himself the I Am. That means he is the one being in all existence who has always been and who always will be. He is the one being who is beyond time, space, matter, energy, and all finite limitations. And all that is not God, this passage says, was made by God. He made it all. That includes the heavens above in all of their majesty. You know, many years ago, a team of scientists was working with a Hubble Space Telescope, and they came up with an experiment. They said, we want to find the darkest point in the night sky, and we want to train the telescope to that point and see what we find. So they searched the night sky, and they found their spot. This tiny little point, about the size of a pencil eraser, held at arm's length, an absolute black void in the sky. They trained the Hubble Space Telescope toward that point. And do you know what they found? They found thousands and thousands of galaxies. Galaxies of every size and shape and color. And each one of these galaxies possessed hundreds of billions of stars. And you can still look at the images today. Just go online and type in the Hubble Ultra Deep Field Project. You'll be mesmerized by the images. And that was just one tiny point in the night sky. Today, most scientists believe that the known universe has at least one trillion galaxies. It's incomprehensible, the size of our universe. And yet, this one God made it all. And he made it just by willing it into existence out of nothingness. He also sculpted the earth to make the beautiful biosphere that we see today, complete with its breathable air and its abundance of waters and its rich soils. It was by the wisdom of God that a rhythm was established for the earth, with its cycles of day and night and spring and summer and fall and winter. God is also the author of life. More than five billion species of life over the history of our planet, all in their amazing variety, God is the origin of them all. Everything from algae to dinosaurs to people, through all of these things, God is revealing what he is like to us. That's what Romans 1.19 says. It declares what can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to us through the things that he has made. 
And so we look at the universe that God made, both at the macro level with the the universe, but then at the micro level. We see the, the universe and all of its wonder and beauty and complexity. We learn something about God himself. We learn that God must be a very brilliant being. That brilliant beyond our comprehension. How, how else could he have made these wonders? Not just the physical things of the universe, but even the unseen laws of nature that govern their movements. And we look at the universe and we think how beautiful God must be. The universe itself is so beautiful, it must have been a, a beautiful mind that created it all. We look at the universe and see how powerful God must be. You know, the the sun that we orbit around, it has more power in it than all of the nuclear weapons ever developed over the history of the last century. And that's just one star. And there are hundreds of billions of stars in the one galaxy we inhabit. And there are a trillion or more galaxies in the known universe. The power of God is beyond comprehension. He just spoke the words and all of this was made. And we look at the universe and see the creativity of God. But you know, this passage tells us God isn't just there and he isn't just the creator of all of this, but he also governs it. He is called here the Lord of heaven and earth. That means he is the king of his creation. God did not just make things and then step back and kind of watch it unfold on its own. No, God spoke the universe into existence and he has been there with his universe right from the beginning and he has persisted with his universe right to the present time. God is ruling over it even now as its king. In fact, the book of Colossians says that by him All things hold together, which means that if God were to step back from his universe for even one nanosecond, every particle of the universe would break apart. He is the force that holds it all together. See, God doesn't need this universe, but it sure needs him. We need God for every breath that we take. In fact, that leads us to the end of verse 25. It said, God is also the giver of every good gift. He gives us life and breath and everything. The God who created this universe also showers you with his grace. Friends and family, sandy beaches and warm sunny days with cool breezes, all the things that make life a joy to live, they all come from God. They're all... Gifts of love from him to you. Friends, these are the things that we need to know about God today. We need to know that he's there, that he's the creator of all that is not God, that he is the good governor, the king of this universe, and that he is the source of every good thing that we've ever received, that we are utterly and completely dependent upon Him for every moment of life that we enjoy. Then there are also some things that we need to know about ourselves. This takes us to verses uh, 26 through 28 of our text. Look what it says about us. 
It says, And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. So some important things to know about us. First thing we see here is that we ourselves are creations of God. And that makes sense, right? If, if God created everything external to himself, that would include us. We are creations of God. In the book of Genesis, it even says that we were made in God's image. That means that human nature corresponds to the divine nature in a way that, that nothing else in all creation does. That's what gives special value to human life. And it says here that God made all of us from one original man. That was Adam. Book of Genesis, it says that God formed the first man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and then that man became a living soul. And then God saw that it wasn't good for the man to be alone. And so he took some of the material from Adam's side, some of his genetic material. And from that, God fashioned the first woman, Eve. And then God brought Adam and Eve together as husband and wife. And he blessed them. And he said to them, now be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And they did. The scriptures tell us that every single one of us are descendants of that first couple. And what that means is that we are not so different from one another after all. You know, our society loves to try to break us up and, and set us against each other. They divide us into groups based on race or class or gender or any number of, of other superficial criteria. But what we learn from Scripture is that really there's just one human family. Every single one of us is organically connected to every other person. And were we all to trace our genealogies back far enough, we would find that we have the same first parents. One human family. And God chose the time in history when each one of us would be born. And He chose the place where each one of us would live our lives. And God even created us all for a glorious purpose. We saw that in verse 27. It said, God made us that we should seek God and perhaps feel our way toward Him and find Him. Isaiah 43 gives us an, an even more direct answer. It says, Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, whom I created for my glory. See, that's what God made us for. He made us to, to see Him in all of His beauty, to see all of the gifts that He has given to us, and to give our lives back to Him in worship and obedience. God made us to, to know Him, to love Him, to serve Him, to delight in all that He is for us. And He created us to know that we are loved and known by Him. And friends, it is in that state that human beings are most happy. St. Augustine said it many centuries ago, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. 
Back to Genesis again. The scriptures tell us that when God first created the world, this is exactly what it was like. Absolute harmony between God and his creation. There was genuine communion between our first parents and God. He spoke to them and they spoke back. And there was no anger, no fear, no doubt, no no conflict of any sort. It was a perfect paradise. Humanity as, as it was meant to be. But of course, the world isn't like that anymore, is it? We look around us today and we see a world that has been shattered, absolutely shattered. We're in a broken world today. God feels very far away today. The scriptures give an explanation for that too. It tells us that back there in the Garden of Eden, our first parents chose to exercise their free wills and turn aside from God. They determined that the knowledge of God was not something to to hold on to. They wanted to be their own gods and go their own way. That's what the Bible calls sin. That first act of sin was also called the fall. It refers to a a lowering of the state of humanity from one of, of happiness and holiness, of enjoying communion with God, to now one where God is separated. He seems very distant, and our lives are racked inside and out with trouble. But friends, even now in this broken world of ours, God may still be found. That's what the apostle says here in today's text. He says that we can seek God and feel our way toward him and find him because he's actually not very far from each one of us right now. In him we live and move and have our being. Though he may feel distant, he is actually still very near Jeremiah 29, 13 puts it this way, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. See, friends, we are surrounded on every side by revelation from God. We've already talked about His creation. There isn't a place that you can direct your gaze and not see something of God. Everything here is an extension of Himself in the sense that He made it. It reflects something of his character. And even though the beauty of it has been marred by by the presence of sin, you can still see its beauty. Like a vase that has survived a fire. You look, it's charred, it's broken. But beneath that dark veneer, you can see this was a beautiful vase. That's what the world is like today. You can still see God here. And you can still learn of God by looking within. There is a witness to God's moral law within every person. It's called the conscience. It tells us that God is there. It tells us what he is like, what he expects of his image bearers. And then, of course, we also have his written word. It's on all of our laps this morning. These are are God's words to us through his apostles and prophets. And we can go to his word and learn of him. You see, even in a world broken by sin and suffering and death, God may still be found. He is still near if we will only search for Him. And indeed, we have an obligation to search for Him. Look at verses 29 and 30 of our text. It says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. No, the times of ignorance, uh, the times of ignorance God overlooked. 
But now he commands all people everywhere. That's the obligation. He commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, what does it mean to repent? Well, to repent is simply to have a change of mind and heart about something. And specifically here, repentance means that we come to see just how far we have drifted away from the God who made us. We, we come to realize that we have spent far too many years thinking low thoughts of God. Maybe we haven't thought about Him at all. Or maybe we've crafted a God in our own image and bowed before that. Repentance means that, that we see we've given way too many years to, to making things other than God the center of our lives. See, that's where God belongs. He belongs as the center of our solar system. Everything about life should be revolving around Him. That's what we were created to live like. That's where we are most satisfied, and that's what God expects of us as His people. But we need to come to see we've spent too many years putting other things at the center of life. Things like the pursuit of money, or career, or beauty, or food, or sex, or alcohol, or drugs, or leisure, or recreation, or a thousand other things. Those have become our new gods. We've put aside the true God. Repentance means seeing that we've done that, but then now turning in our minds and hearts back to God, saying that life is empty, it's meaningless, it's even sinful because that's not what God wants me to live for. It's this, it's Him. Repentance is turning from a life directed away from God to a life that is centered on God. It's coming to live as we were created to live. Verse 30 shows us what an urgent need it is for every one of us to see God for who He is, to see us for who we are, and then to respond to this knowledge with repentance and faith. Verse 30 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. See, that means for ages and ages of human history, God has held His cataclysmic judgments back. He's chosen not not to bring them. But this text says that we're in a new day now. The times have changed. We no longer live in the times of ignorance. We live in a time when there's urgency to respond to God's command. Now, what made the change between time of ignorance and now this time of urgency? Well, what has changed is that now God has sent His Son into the world. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. His coming introduced a new age of world history. According to the Scriptures, Christ is God's fullest and final act of revelation to us. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the very image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. The point here is that when God sent His Son Jesus into the world, God answered every last question about what God is like. He removed every doubt of what God is and what God expects from all of us. You see, through Christ, we see God's perfect character. Through Christ's teachings, we see God's perfect will. Through Christ's suffering and death, we see God's hatred of sin, but also of His commitment to defeating it and reconciling with us. Christ has come, He has brought God as near as He can be to us, and God has answered everything that we need to know about Him through His Son. 
And so we're no longer living in times of ignorance. We're living in the days of urgency when we must respond to God. According to the scriptures, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ marks the end of the times of ignorance, the beginning of the last days. Listen to Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by prophets. But now, in these last days, there's the phrase, in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And so there's the urgency today. Times of ignorance are gone. God's very Son has come. He's lived and He's died. And this changes things. This creates the urgency. Now these are the last days we must respond to God. We must return to Him in faith and repentance. And then verse 31, we're given a very powerful motivation for why today should be the day. I'll read verse 30 again. The times of ignorance God overlooked. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That's his son, Christ. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, here is our motivation to seek God and find him to repent and to believe in Him. It's because now Christ has come and a day of judgment has been fixed. It's been fixed. And you notice that the scope of God's judgments will be universal. He says He will judge the whole world and it will be a righteous judgment. He says He'll judge it in righteousness. That means the sentences meted out on that day will be absolutely right. He will deal with every single person on the basis of what they did with their knowledge of God, their knowledge of His Son, and what they did with His invitation to them. And the judge on that great day, this text says it will be none other than Christ Himself. God's Son will stand in judgment over us. You know, during His earthly ministry, our Lord said that He would be the judge Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, talking about this fixed day, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Christ himself said that he would be the one appointed by God on that last day to judge what people did with God, what they did with him. And he says on that day, he's, he's going to know who simply paid lip service to him and who really meant it, who performed good works in his name just out of their own self-righteousness. And who did it out of hearts of repentance and faith? He will know because he's God's son. He'll know all things. He says, given that, should we not respond to him? He says we can be assured of all of this by one event in history, by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now, 
How does Christ's resurrection assure us that all of these things are so? Well, here's how they assure us. See, over the course of Christ's ministry, he said a whole lot of stunning things. I just mentioned one already. He claimed that he would be the judge at the end of history. That the fates of the souls of all men from all time would rest on him. But he made a lot of other stunning claims over the course of his ministry. I mean, he said things like, before Abraham was, I am, equating himself with God. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to God except through me. Amazing claims. Now, friends, if Jesus was lying when he said all of this, or if he was just delusional, thinking that these things were so when they really weren't, would God have raised him from the dead? Oh, no. Better for such a man to die and be buried and let the memory of him be forgotten, let the world move on so they can find the true God. But no, God raised him up from the dead. That proves God's stamp of approval on him in all that he taught. The resurrection of Christ was God saying, yes, everything he said about himself was true. And when he said that he was going to the cross to make a full atonement for your sins, that was true. I've raised him up. The atonement is complete. And when he said he's going to be your future judge, he was telling the truth. He's alive again. See it for yourself. You see, the resurrection of Christ is the confirmation of all that he said and did. That's why the resurrection of Christ is the greatest truth of the Christian faith. Friends, as we begin winding this text down now, we see that there are four things that we must know. Four basic truths related to God and us. First truth was that God is there, that he's real, and that he's like no one else. He's the creator of all things, the Lord of heaven and earth, the giver of all good gifts, and that we are all utterly dependent upon him. Second truth was about ourselves. We are creations of God, bearers of his image, that we are all part of one human family, and therefore we all have one common need. That takes us to the third point, the one common need, repentance and faith. We have all turned aside from God. We are far from him. There's a reason why God feels so distant from all of us. There's a reason why every story in the newspaper is a disaster. Because the world does not know God. Or if we do, we certainly have no relationship to Him. There is a great need for all of us to repent of sin, to turn away, to take all the things that we've put in the center of life, move them back where they belong, back in orbit around the sun, and to make God the sun again. That's repentance and faith. And to do so through Christ seeing Him as God's very Son, the one that God sent to live, die, and rise again for our sakes. Then the fourth truth was that we have a powerful motivation to respond to God today. It's because there is a day of judgment. It's fixed. All of us will be subjected to it. The risen Christ Himself will be the judge, and His judgments will be right. Four important truths that we must all grasp. Now, very, very quickly, down to verses 32 to 34. Remember, this original passage was a speech made by the Apostle Paul to a group of philosophers. In these verses, we see the responses the philosophers gave. 
Look what it says, verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Okay, Some of the people made fun of Paul when he finished speaking. But others said, we will hear uh, you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst. Verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So Paul's speech is over. He said everything that we need to know. Look at the different responses of the philosophers. Three responses, to be exact. Some people mocked Paul when he was finished. Nonsense. They went on their way. Others heard Paul. They thought it was interesting, but they procrastinated. They said, we think we're going to wait a while, hear about this again later on. Well, the problem with that is Paul left and he never came back. They didn't get another chance with Paul. But then we see the third group, perhaps the smallest group, but it says they believed this message by God's grace, was seen to be the truth. And they said, yes, I need this. I needed to know this about God and about me, and I'm ready to respond to that. Some believed. Now, my friends, I assume that within this audience, we have the same three groups. Some of you have indulged Pastor Brandon for 40 minutes and now you're ready to drive home and chuckle. What a, what a silly sermon that was. You know, others of you are going to drive home today and you're going to say, that was interesting. I should probably learn more about that. But you're not going to follow up. Life will get busy again and everything will go back to the way it was. Perhaps an opportunity lost. But then there will be a third group. And this group will say, yes. This is the truth of God. I need to respond to it in faith. I need to repent of sin. I need to trust in God through His Son. And I need to do it right away. I can't delay. Some of you will say that. Friends, if you're in the first or second category, I cannot help you. All I can do is pray that maybe God will open your hearts. But if you're in the third group, I can urge you to respond to God now. Even from your seat, pray to God a prayer of simple repentance and faith. Become a Christian today, Easter Sunday. What better day to do it than Easter Sunday? Or catch me after the service and make an appointment so that it doesn't just get left behind. Say, let's talk about this just one-on-one, -on -one, Pastor, later this week. There are still some things that I need to settle. I would urge you, though, don't ignore what has been said today. Now, let's close in prayer together. Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us. Thank you for this Easter Sunday. Thank you for this speech that the Apostle Paul gave to that group of philosophers in Athens 2,000 years ago. But, Lord, his words were timeless because they spoke timeless truths about you, about us about the reason why there is a separation between us and you and about what is needed to bring us back together for a reconciliation to take place. And Lord, would you work in hearts today? Would you, would you convince everyone in this room that the path to joy and satisfaction and to eternal life 
is all bound up in how they are related to you. What they do with your son and his great gift of life, death, and resurrection. Lord, impress that on their hearts today. And bring them back next week to continue learning from new passages of your word. And I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.